if we haven't met, and it's a joy for me to be on staff here on the Erie campus and be able to open up God's Word with you. If you're new this morning, here's where we are. We're going through a series through the book of Exodus, which is the Old Testament account of how God historically brought his people out of slavery to a place of freedom and peace. And this is the, what we're doing is we're following this account because we want to know who God is. Not as we would imagine him to be or wish he would be or fashion him to be, but as he truly is. And our picture of who God is as this awesome, powerful, majestic God is growing bigger and bigger every single week as we look at Exodus. And our trust in God is growing deeper and deeper and deeper as we see that this God, awesome in power and mighty indeed, is the one who hears our prayers and sees our suffering and enters our life and our grief and brings us out of places like Egypt to places of peace and promise that bring life and freedom. And so we're looking at this God who is actually the rescuer, the redeemer, the one who brings salvation and frees us completely. Now, there's some misconceptions about what freedom really is. Some of us think, you know, in order to be free, that means to be freed from all constraints. The idea that true freedom is the absence of all constraints, as though we were autonomous to only ourselves. But that, that's not what freedom is. Freedom is not merely the absence of constraints, but also simultaneously the presence of the right conditions. We need both the absence of constraints and we need the presence of the right conditions in order for us to experience true freedom. Here's a picture to get your mind around this. Imagine you're on the beach. Who would like to be on the beach this week? Awesome. I was. It was great. Now, I was there, and I was out of town. Tom Shirk did a great job last week. Um, but I missed you. I, I love you guys. I think about you. I pray for you. I'm sure it's mutual. I mean, really, you're just growing on me. Over five years, you know, you're just really growing on me. But I, I, I loved being with the family in California, and I was thinking about this. So you're on the beach. And you're walking down the beach, and there's an object lying on this hot, dry sand. And as you walk up, you see that it's a dolphin that has been caught in a fisherman's net. And the tide has gone out, and here this dolphin, still alive, is, is restrained in this net. And so you pull out your trusty knife, you cut off this net, you remove it from his dorsal fin and his tail, from the front of the dolphin to the back of the dolphin, you completely free him, and the net is laid to the side, and only the dolphin is laying on the net, freed from all the constraints of the net, and you say, you're free! And then the dolphin lays there on the hot sand and dies. That'd be sad. What the dolphin also needs is not only to be removed from the constraints of the net, but to be put into the right conditions that he was made for, the ocean. And so you return the dolphin to the ocean. There the dolphin is finally free to be all that God has made the dolphin to be, to swim wherever he wants in all the ocean. He is finally free because we have removed the constraints and have put him into the right conditions. This is what real freedom is. And so when we talk about freedom that God brings to his people from Egypt, is not only moving them from Egypt, but bringing them to the right conditions that they were made for, which is himself. So I'm going to show you this. Go to Exodus. We'll do chapter 8 and chapter 9 as our examples. Here, God is talking to Moses about what to say to Pharaoh while they were still enslaved in Egypt, about bringing his people out of slavery into the promised land. Check out chapter 8, verse 1. 
says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go, comma, that they may serve me. Check out chapter nine, verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, comma, so that they might serve me. Check out chapter nine, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they might serve me. That real freedom is not simply to remove Israel from the nets of Egypt and bring them out to the wilderness and say, you're free. But to bring them out of Egypt unto something, for something, which is the service and worship of God. Now you might think, well, that just seems like a constraint to me. If I have to serve and worship God, well, that doesn't seem as though that's real freedom. But you misunderstand who you are. Human beings, whether you're faith-oriented or not, are worshipers by nature. All human beings worship and serve something or someone. Worship is the idea of worth-ship, something we attribute worth and value to, so we give of our time, our talents, and treasures to acquire it. And if we do not serve God, we'll find something else to serve. But all other masters will re-enslave us. Even if we're freed to our own autonomous desires, you know what will happen? You know what happens to me? Is my own desires, my lusts, my pride, my arrogance become my master. And I'm enslaved to them. Only God is the one in whom we serve and worship in such a right-fitting way so that we are ultimately and fully free. Only God has created the right areas, the right conditions for us to experience full and true freedom. That's what we're built for. Augustine, church father, famously and rightfully said, our souls are restless until we find our rest in thee. That we are built for God, to be in relationship with God. And so real true freedom is the removing of the constraints of Egypt so that the people might come out of Egypt unto something, really unto someone, be in relationship to worship and to serve the creator in whom they were made for. That's real freedom. And so God has called them out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness, and he brings them to the Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, where he gives them this covenant, and they make this vow. This, this whole scene is set up as though it's like a marriage ceremony. And there God gives his vows, and there the people of Israel give their vows. Knowing that this is what God is calling them to, they say, we will do it. Last week we saw those 10 famous statements, 10 commandments that God has called his people to be shaped by. And Israel stood there at the mount and said, yes, we take you to be our God, and we will uphold our covenant with you. And Moses then goes up on the mountain to receive the covenant, to actually have them etched in two stone tablets. And in his departure, the people get restless and forget God. The episode we're going to look at is the episode of the golden calf. And there's two things I want you to learn from the text today. There's two things that I need to learn from today's texts. The first is this. 
When we forget God, we fashion ourselves idols. When we forget God, we fashion ourselves idols. Point two, the idols that we fashion rob us of our life and return to us emptiness, isolation, and shame. That's what an idol does, is it robs us of our life and returns to us only emptiness, isolation from God, and shame. So let's take a look at how Israel learns this in this episode, starting in verse 1 of chapter 32. He's like, wow, it sounds so upbeat. What a great message. When we land the plane in 25 minutes, you'll see the grace of God. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. First thing you see is that Moses seems to be delayed. That Moses has been before them. They can see him and touch him. They can hear from him. And he goes up on the mountain. There he's speaking with God. He says, where'd Moses go? We can't see him anymore. We can't touch him. We can't hear from him. He's being delayed. He's taking a long time up there. What happened to him? I don't know, but we need something. There's something about when Moses delayed that the people become restless, become uneasy. The sure footing that they once thought was secure all of a sudden seems to be giving way. And in their restlessness, this fear creeps in, and they say, we need something that we can see, that we can touch, that we can know, that that is where our strength and security and our salvation comes from. And so they go to Moses' brother, Aaron, and they say, Aaron, make for us something we can see. Make for us gods that we can feel secure in, that we can trust. And Aaron does it. Check out verse two. Verse two says, so Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Here's the first principle of all idols. When you or I fashion an idol, it always begins by robbing us. The first thing Aaron does in fashioning this idol that people want is he calls the people and says, all that gold, those earrings, those rings, the jewelry that, that God graciously gave us as we departed Egypt, I, I, I want them. You bring me your wealth. Go find your wife's earrings and find your children's bank accounts and drain them and bring me all the money and I'll make you a God that you can trust in. I'll make you a God that you can see. I'll fashion you something. Bring me your wealth. And they do. They bring the things that God graciously give them and they give them to Aaron. And Aaron melts them down and with a tool, he creates a golden calf. Now, why a calf? 
We don't really get this in our culture. Many cultures today who are living would understand this, that they still worship and they see a calf, an animal as divine. Especially around the time of Israel leaving Egypt, not only did Egypt use the image of a calf, but other neighboring countries used the images of a calf to portray strength, vitality, and fertility. And so the Egypt... In Egypt, they learned that the world looks to this as an image of strength. And so when they come out to Sinai, and Moses is gone, and he's delayed, and we need to see something and touch something and feel strong again, what do they make? Well, that country over there has always used the image of a calf. And that country over there, the cultures around us seem to find their strength in a calf. Aaron, make us one too so we can be like them. Make us a calf. And then make it out of gold. And so this is what Aaron says. Like, this is, this is the gods. He's attributing the salvation that they've experienced, the strength that they've experienced, to these handmade, man-made, fashioned idols. It's amazing. Then what happens is, in verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought a peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This weird perversion of worship, of taking idols and trying to incorporate the worship of Yahweh, the Lord, takes place. So that's at the base of the mountain. They've given their wealth. They've fashioned an idol. They're dancing and praising and giving their energies towards this idol. Up on the mountain is Moses with God. And we pick up in verse 7, this episode. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Now here's a, so far in the story, it's always been God's people. And here God says, Moses, your people, they're not doing so good down there. Now, to be honest, I don't even understand this whole interaction with Moses and God. I, all I can picture is almost like this husband-wife interaction where, you know, when your kids did something wrong and your spouse comes to you, he's like, you won't believe what your son did. You're like, my son? I thought we had a son. Why are you trying to throw this all on me? But here God says, Moses, your people, your people, they have done a great, done a great sin. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly. I mean, we just got out of Egypt. We just had these vows with one another. And they have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And said, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They broke the very first two things I told them not to do. Don't have any other gods before me. We can do that. Let's make gods before our God. And number two, don't fashion an idol after me. Let's make an idol and let's worship it. And so they have quickly turned aside and they have done this very thing that I told them not to do. Right after they took these wedding vows. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen the people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I might, may make a great nation 
of you. I know we talk about Father Abraham and this nation, but man, I am so angry with what they're doing that Moses said to the side, I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to kill them all. And then we'll just start again. We'll start with you, and you can be the, the, the patriarch of a new nation. I'll make a great nation out of you, Moses. God is angry. And I know we know it, but it's helpful to be reminded. God hates sin. He hates it. God absolutely hates the sin in his people. He hates the sin that's in my life. He hates the sin that's in your life. It angers him. Now, what we often do is we then compartmentalize who God is, and we parcel him in all of his attributes and say, okay, God must, like, maybe in his left hand is all of his mercies and compassions and grace and kindness. But in his right hand is all of his anger and wrath and judgment and holiness. Gosh, I sure hope God gives me his left hand and not his right hand. I wonder what God we're going to run into today. That's not at all how the scriptures talk about God. They don't parcel God by his attributes. They say God fully is love. God is love. God is just. God is holy. God is gracious. Meaning that he is simultaneously fully all of his attributes all of the time. You never have to worry about what you run into with God. Am I going to get the right hand or the left hand? What attribute am I going to see? No, you're going to get God as he is fully all the time. And here they're seeing God's right and fitting response to their sin. One pastor put it this way to help us viscerally experience what's going on here. It's as though on the honeymoon, one of the spouses went and had an affair. And we wouldn't fault the other spouse for being angry because they're jealous of what is truly theirs. We just took vows. What are you doing finding other lovers? And here's Israel quickly turning aside to having fashioned themselves other gods. God says, my wrath is burning hot. I'm angry. I hate this in my people. And if we're honest with ourselves, don't we hate our sin too? We hate our sin. Moses steps in as kind of an intercessory, intercessory, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Thus from your burning anger... Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Here Moses 
admits, okay, we forgot, okay, we forgot who you were, and we fashioned idols. But what he appeals to God is, Lord, we know we forgot. But you, you remember. Don't forget what you have said. He calls God to remember what you said to Abraham and Isaac and Israel, what you promised us. Be faithful to everything you have said you would do for your people in bringing us to a place of promise. You yourself has made this oath. Be faithful to remember the oath that you have given to your people. Remember your vows, God. And God relents from bringing his wrath down on his people at this moment. Now Moses has these 10 statements, these 10 commandments etched in stone tablets, and he begins to ascend, or descend the hill. And Moses only heard about what the people have been doing in their sin, and for the first time he sees it. He sees what idolatry brings. And check this out. This is verse 19. And as soon as he came near to the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. See, he feels that same anger. What are they doing His anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So Moses comes down, and he senses the same anger of, why did we leave God? He brought us the freedom of the constraints out of the nets of Egypt unto himself that we would worship and serve him and while we worship and serve in this thing you have broken your vows and the covenant with god and as a sign of this he takes the tablets and he smashes them down on the rocks and says as the vows have been broken so are the tablets that are broken it can't be repaired now and then he does this thing This God that there's so much strength and security in. There's no God in this golden calf. There's no real strength. Moses takes it and burns the thing to the ground. And then he takes rocks or others and he grinds all of the ash up to make it look like dust. Deuteronomy 9, 21, kind of recounting the same episode, says that he took that dust and he threw it in the stream that was coming out of the mountain. There was probably one stream of fresh water that was the water source of the people. And there he took this dust of the calf and he scattered it on their water source and thus all the people drank this idol that they made. And you think, why is he having them drink the idol? That's weird. Yeah, it's weird. There's some weird stuff in your Bible. Have you not read this thing lately? Here's the question. Why does he have them drink it? There are different ideas of why. Sometimes it correlates it with the Levitical law and what happens later with Israel. But I look at this and I think, Moses is trying to make a point of the worthlessness of idols. And I don't think it's so much about the consumption of the idol as much as it is as about the excretion of it. Imagine this. Here's the idol that you said, we need something strong, visible, and we've given our lives, our wealth, and our energies to. They built it. And then Moses burns it, makes it ash, and you consume it. Having given all of yourself, your wife's earrings, your children's jewelry, all to this idol, and the next day you wake up, and there it is, in the toilet. That's it. 
Like I gave all my wealth to this. I was dancing for this. I was giving energies to this. I was in the toilet. It's to show God's people what idols are. A total and complete sham. It's just a sham. Idols rob you of your life and only return to you emptiness, isolation from God, and shame. Truly, this points to the picture that idols are a complete load of, well, you know. <laughs> That's what idols are. And we too, like Israel, have forgotten God at times. And we rush off in our insecurities to fashion ourselves something that will bring us strength, security, our own salvation. And we rush and we say, if I could just buy that, if I could consume that, if I could just be with her, be with him, then I would be satisfied. Life would be secure. I'd be okay. I would become the person that I thought I should be. And then you go get that, consume that, be with them, and it doesn't satisfy in fact, some of those things like enslaved you. And it leaves you emptier than before. And you gave all this money to it. And you gave all this time to it. And it leaves you empty. Now isolated from God. And you just feel shame. That's what an idol does. And so Moses then goes to Aaron. And he has to ask Aaron, what'd you do this for, man? Verse 21, and Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what, he has, what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who has gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. I don't think Aaron actually knows he's being an idiot. Because that's what sin does. That's what sin does. We can't see our own faults. And the first thing we do when we're confronted with our own sin is we blame somebody. So here Moses comes to Aaron and says, what did you do? He's like, well, you know the people. They're crazy, man. They're crazy. They wanted gods that they could see and touch. And so I just told them, well, bring me the jewelry. And I threw in the fire out in this calf. I don't know. The same story that Adam and Eve gave God. Remember when God came to Adam? He said, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to? And the wife you gave me, she took some and gave it to me. God goes and asks Eve, Eve, did you eat of the fruit that I told you not to? You break the covenant? God, the serpent that you put in the garden. I mean, you're at fault here. What's he doing here talking to me? Our sin is always somebody else's fault, isn't it? I'll tell you, in all the marriage counseling and the counseling I've ever done with couples, when they come in and say, what's the problem? They always say, well, man, you, you know what she did? You know what he did? 
Let me tell you about how bad they are. They have never, ever come and sat down and said, here's the deal. We've talked about it on the way over. We both realize, well, we're both really prideful. We hurt each other. We're not going to really surrender and be like submissive to each other. We're not going to really be kind and loving to each other. I don't really respect him. I don't respect her. We just kind of realize we're mostly just kind of jerks stuck in our way. And so I'm hurting her. She's hurting me. And this is kind of the way it is. Sort of miserable, but that's where we're at. Never. Never. It's always... You know, she makes me so mad. He makes me crazy. I had no other choice. And you know what God never says? Oh, okay. (laughs) Makes sense. Never. He always holds us accountable to the decisions we make. Truly the wages, the consequence, the penalty of sin is death. We just die. This is what happened with Adam and Eve. This is what happens here. This is what, exactly what Paul says. It kills us. And God brings judgment into the camp of Israel, his own people. And there, the Levites are instituted as the priests of Israel in the most striking way as they go and bring God's judgment on 3,000 men who worshiped as they're put to death. God hates sin. He hates it, and it cannot be in his presence. He will not put up with it. But I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. What does he do about that? Because he loves us. Moses then heads up on the mountain. He says this to the people, verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. When the Old Testament talks about the sin of great sin, is it one of two things? One of idolatry, making an idol. It's a great sin. And that could be fitting right here in this text. But also the great sin is that of adultery. And that can also be here with Israel in a covenant relationship with their God. The next day Moses said to the people, you have committed this great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. I can fix this, Moses says. Atonement is this idea of reconciling two parties that have been estranged. Think of atonement as this, at one meant. So two parties have been estranged. Atonement is the reconciling of these two parties to bring them back into oneness, at one mint. Let me go see if I can restore this and bring us back into one mint with God. I will go make atonement for your sins. And so Moses returned to the Lord. As this people has sinned a great sin, they have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So here Moses tries to be the atonement for the people's sin. If you're, if you're gonna not forgive them, Lord, well then don't put your wrath on them. Just let it come on me. Let me receive your judgment so that I can be blotted out of your book, but not your people. And Moses is an insufficient atonement for the people of God. But remember, all of this in Exodus points to a better Moses, the better Exodus which God himself, seeing that we are all sinners, 
but loving us came down to deal with sin once and for all. This is why the angel tells Mary, the mother of Jesus, you will have Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. God is coming down to us and he will save his people from their sins. This is why John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. Moses is unsuccessful as he goes up the mountain of Horeb trying to secure atonement for the people. But Jesus climbs the Mount of Calvary up on the cross to make atonement for all the people. This is what Jesus Christ is doing, making atonement. And so Romans chapter five points out to us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before we got our act together, while we were still stuck in sin, he came and died for us. That's God's love. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received atonement. This word reconciliation here in your Bible. That Jesus Christ makes atonement. So as he sits on the cross, he bears all of our sins, all of the sins, no matter what you've done, all those sins were put on the back of Jesus on the cross. And God's right and fitting response to sin is wrath. And God pours out his wrath that we deserve onto Jesus. And there Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're so caught up in sin, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. And there in the death and resurrection of Christ is atonement purchased for all who would believe. This is what gathers us here to worship God and say, God is for us, God loves us, why? Because he sent his son Jesus Christ to be the atoning sacrifice to forgive us of our sins. And so we come to God in repentance and say, God, we forgot you, we forgot you. But do not forget your promise that you, are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness if we would confess our sins to you. And so, Lord, I want to confess my sins to you. I, I, I forgot you, and I fashioned these little idols of little g-gods, and I gave them all my life, and I gave it my energies, and it returned to me emptiness, isolation from you, and shame. That's all I come. I bring all that to you. Can you do anything with that? God says, oh yeah, that's my specialty. Bring me all your emptiness. Bring me your isolation. Bring me your sin. Bring me your shame. And I will swallow it up in Jesus. So you'll have no fear, no condemnation against you. For I will take care of this in the work of my son. That's the story. That's the gospel. How great is God? Now, if we fashion idols because we forget who God is. The remedy is to remember. Always remember. That's how we gather to remember who God is. That's how we have the word to read it and remember who God is. That's why Jesus gives us the Lord's Supper to remember. On the night he was betrayed before he climbed the Mount of Calvary, he was reclining at the table, a Passover meal, 
And there he took bread from the table and the cup from the table and made a new covenant in his work. And this is what Paul tells us. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, that's the bread, and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance so that you don't forget. You don't forget. Verse 25. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So you never forget. You always remember of my rich love towards you, my salvation and strength for you. You would never forget. You'd always remember and so that you don't fashion an idol and have it rob you of your life. That you would never forget and you would always remember the nets that I freed you from of sin and death and brought you to myself to serve and to worship that you might experience true and full and real freedom in Christ.